All right, so we will be looking at Romans 13, uh, particularly um, in terms of the commandment to not murder. Again, so uh, a reminder that the first part of the book, we have the gospel laid out. Uh, We're given the thesis that uh, Christ, we're we're given the thesis from Paul, sorry. Um, It's the word of Christ delivered through Paul. But we're, we're given the thesis from Paul that uh, he tells us that the just shall live by faith, and that gets exposited. Uh, we talk about the righteousness of God being revealed from faith to faith. Those are the themes that we've emphasized so much throughout this, this sermon series through the book of Romans. And so what gets discussed is the way in which God's righteousness is revealed in different ways in terms of the law, in terms of his judgment against us in terms of the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us by faith alone and also the way in which we are sanctified to be made more and more like Christ. And so we get into uh, the latter part of that section and it talks about the justice of God towards Israel and then in chapter 12 there's the turning point and the turning point talks about living our lives as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God and we saw how there was this huge emphasis In chapter 12, and then the first seven verses of Romans, on the fifth commandment. And then Paul lists out for us the other five commandments that are given in terms of how you love your neighbor. And then he tells us to love our neighbor. He he reminds us of that as a summary of the six commandments that teach us how to love our neighbor. The second table of the law. So please stand very briefly as we read the short section from Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. You may be seated. Alright, so we're told here, remember verse 8 is frequently cited for the idea that it's wrong to take out debt, which we looked at the fact that that's not the case. Charity loans, for example, are a form of debt, and yet we're commanded to give them. We're not allowed to do something, it's not a blessing to do something that would be a curse to the other person. If we give to somebody, we lend to them without interest as a charity loan, we're blessing them, and that creates a debt on their part. And so the the point is not to outlaw all debt, although the Bible frequently warns against foolish debts, consuming, taking out loans to increase your consumption, as opposed to debts that are business debts for the intelligent growth of your own assets and, and the ability to borrow and to use that to generate more value than the cost of the money is not what is warned against in Scripture. It's to be looked at carefully. But what's talked about in verse 8 is to know to owe no one anything except to love one another, we, we talked about the fact that that means the only extent of your obligations to others are what the law of God commands. And so then it tells us, he who loves another has fulfilled the law. He who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's explanatory. And at the end, verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Right? The idea that you're seeking the good of someone, that's the positive duty of love, and not causing harm, that's the negative duty of love. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And the commandments in between are explanations of what it means to love. So Paul is, is showing us that the Ten Commandments explain to us what it is to love God and to love neighbor. And so the love of neighbor is being explained here. So we're continuing the Sixth Commandment. And the Sixth Commandment is, you shall not murder. Now one comment I want to make When you look at the command to not kill or not murder in the Hebrew, the word that's used for for murder or kill is a word that is almost always translated in terms of some sort of negative killing. But it's used a few times to refer to killing in a way that's broader or justified. The word that's used in the Greek when it's translated, it's interesting that we have the Greek translation, right? Because in the New Testament it's Greek. The word here that's used in terms of the killing it refers to that the translation is intentional killing. There's another word that's more broadly used for sort of manslaughter or unintentional killing. Um, this word is the intentional killing, and it's used 
Every time it's used in the New Testament is used in a context where murder is the most obvious translation. So some people will try to take the word kill and say, therefore, there's no justified homicide ever, right? There's no, there's no killing for the death penalty. There's no just defense. There's no just war. And they try to use the word kill as a justification for that. But I want to remind you, we always have to go back to the original language in terms of what's a proper translation. And we have to look at the usages of it in the Bible itself. And so the, the translation here, you shall not murder, is a good translation. And murder is distinct from killing generally. So question 136, what are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment? We get the Westminster Larger Catechism here. We're, we're using that to help us to go through. And we have proof texts that we'll be looking at. So what's the answer? What, what are the sins that are forbidden in the sixth commandment? The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. So let's consider first the sins forbidden uh, being the taking away of the life of ourselves. You look at the bottom of page 1, Acts 16, verse 28. Paul was in prison. There was an earthquake and the doors of the prison open up. And in the process of that, the, the jail guard, the, the jailer, he wakes up, and he sees that all the doors are opened. And one of the penalties in Rome uh, for if you had prisoners and then they escape is you receive the penalty of the prisoner uh, that they would have received. And that makes it so that you can't be bribed, is sort of the idea there. Well, he had a number of criminals there, and having that many criminals escape his penalty would be death. And so the other problem is that there's a possibility that other people in his family or his acquaintances might be killed or be harmed as a result of the fact that there would be a thought that maybe there's a conspiracy to let the prisoners out. And so there might be harm done to the ones that he cared about. So the natural response when you don't have the law of God and are not strongly convicted as a Christian when you're facing something like that is despair and the consideration of self-harm. So Paul called with a loud voice, and he says, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Now, this verse is used in, by the Westminster Assembly as a proof text for the idea that we shouldn't harm ourselves. But it also shows that we should seek to stop others from doing harm to themselves. Because Paul yelled out to stop it. Right? So this idea that if you have somebody who is depressed, somebody who's talking about self-harm, we should, as Christians, seek to engage with them in such a way as to encourage them to stop and to help to address these things. Now, despair is the cause, often, of suicide, and we have the answers that address despair. We have the words of life that give strength. We have the ability to speak truths that eliminate despair, and no other philosophy has that. The true philosophy, the revealed religion, the words of Christ have the power of life, and no other philosophy does. And so we have an obligation to avoid taking away the life of ourselves and also to be concerned to see that other people do not have that sin committed. All right, so suicide is never a lawful way to remedy your despair. It is not a lawful comfort. Now, go to page two. The sins forbidden also include, point two here, all taking away the life of others. Genesis 9, 6 is where we have the institution of, of the civil magistrate, of civil government, for the purpose of avenging crimes. And what's given there is sort of the, the emblem to represent crimes. The, the, the thing that is the, the crime to represent all other crimes is murder. And so Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now, pacifists will tend to try to say, this is a statement about the tendency. Um, but it's clear in the context and given the fact that the world was filled with violence before then uh, that there's an obligation 
to avenge, to punish. The civil magistrate, as we read earlier in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, is an avenger. It's a minister of wrath. It's to punish criminals. And so the Genesis 9, verse 6 is the establishment of what's called the law of the claw, the lex talionis. And so what we have is the obligation that somebody who murders ought to be executed. And the reason is because man is the image of God and capital punishment, the highest punishment, is given for the purpose of restraining evil. Now, what has happened in our time is we almost never give out the death penalty, though the Lord, even before the giving of the Mosaic Law and the establishing of the civil magistrate, gave this command. And so, when there is no justice administered, the magistrates who fail to execute murderers when those murderers commit follow-up murderers, they have blood on their hands. They have failed to stop that person who has already shown themselves to have a tendency toward murder from continuing in that. Another application here in our own society is abortion. We have failed in law to protect the unborn, the weakest humans among us. The mother who hires the assassin and the assassin who is commissioned to murder ought to both be treated as participating in murder. And one of the proof texts that helps to show that the Bible clearly teaches that we need to protect the unborn with law is Exodus 23, verses 22 to 25. It says, and you'll see that in the middle of page 2, If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So there's two things there, and this establishes an interesting principle in the law of God. And so you'll see, you'll see point one underneath that. Victims' rights in assault through a covenant representative. So victims have a right to pick a penalty for a crime committed against them. But the maximum penalty is designated by the law of God. And so there's two checks to make sure that vengeance isn't sought sinfully. The checks are the maximum that's desired by the victim, and at the same time also the maximum that the judges determine would be lawful by the law of God. And so there's got to be agreement, and the higher of the two uh, sets, sets the limit, or the lower of the two sets the limit. If the judges determine less is appropriate, the demand of the victim can't go beyond that. So that's the, the principle established there. Now, this is something that's a higher demand than if you were just to assault a grown person or even a, a child that's born. This idea that, that if the striking results in a premature birth even without any other harm, that there is to be a penalty that is designated by the father of that child. And then it goes on, and so that's, that's a hedge of protection over the unborn that's greater than what's over ordinary citizens. Verses 23 onward, But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now that is literary emphasis. That is literary emphasis. The idea that the unborn to be protected with the full strength of the law. Wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Right. So the same protections, if there is harm to this child who was born prematurely, this child is to be protected with the same force of law as every other person. The Bible is so abundantly clear about the protection of the unborn. And this verse is a proof text for our duty, for the protection of the unborn. So when you talk to other people, you often run into Christians who say, I don't know, I agree that abortion is sin, but I don't know that we should use the government to protect the unborn. This verse right here shows that God has always intended that the unborn be protected with the same protections as those who are born, and that these force of law applications apply to them. Point three, the sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or others, except, so now we have the three exceptions. Okay, here's the three exceptions. In case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. So public justice. Public justice, we, we have to remember there's a distinction in law between sin and crime. We cannot punish every sin. God has not given authority to human beings to punish every sin. There's a distinction between crimes and sins. So sin is a broader category. It's like rectangles, okay? And crime is a more narrow category, squares. So all squares are rectangles. Not all rectangles are squares. All crimes in the Bible are sin. 
not all sins are crimes. And so that's an important distinction for us to remember. And so God has given to us in his word the distinction between crime and sin. And the way he has done that is by applying civil penalties to the sins that are crimes. So the things that have a civil penalty attached to them, the things that have a coercive power of the state being used to require restitution or retribution, those things are crimes. And so what we see, for example, is the footnote 3 there. So Numbers 35, verses 31 and 33. This is about murder. This is about the punishment for murder. It says, Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except the blood of him who shed it. Now, that is not a statement about salvation. That obviously, Christ as a representative is able to take away all of the curse. Right? He removes the curse as far as it's found in the process of redemption. And so when he returns, there will be a burning away of all remnant of curse. But what we are required to do is to administer justice. And so the point here is, although generally the victim has the right to lessen a penalty, the victim has the right to lessen a penalty in a crime committed against them, in the case of murder, the idea here is there is no right to lessen that penalty. That those who murder are to be executed. And so that's established there in law, and that demonstrates, one, that there is a duty to sometimes use violence, so the punishment of criminals, and secondly, that it's also sometimes a sin to fail to use violence. And so punishing of criminals is one case, but the second one would be if, you have a, if you're being attacked by somebody and you do not defend yourself, that is sin. If someone under your care is being attacked by somebody else and you do not defend yourself, that is sin. There are clear cases in the Bible where it is your duty to use physical force to the honor of God. And so the establishment of the principle of just punishments and of the principle of just defense of self or others is important for us to be clear about. In the moment of decision, you must not waver. You must know if someone breaks into your house, fathers, it is your job to immediately go into action and to defend your family. You must lay down your life for your wife and for your children. You must not delay. It is your obligation to engage immediately, and so your conscience must be clear. Lawful war. So, page three. The first lawful war that we have exemplified for us is in Genesis 14. And that's when Lot is in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's, he's there, and the city gets taken over by um, Ketelemer and the collection of kings that he has with him. And for some reason, every time I tell you about this, I always say Ketelemer is Hammurabi. <clears throat> that's not Hammurabi. Amraphel is one of the kings that goes with them, and he's Hammurabi. So forgive me, I remembered that as I was going through this, and I looked something up. I always tell you Ketelemer is Hammurabi. That's a lie. I'm a liar. I told you I would tell you false things in the pulpit, and you have to keep me in check. Nobody did it, so, you know, be on guard. So that right there, um, correcting myself. And in Genesis 14, what we see is Lot is taken, and Abraham, along with two other heads of house that he's confederated with, they go and they take the men of their estates, and they engage in warfare against those other kings. So sort of, they're sort of minor kings. Abraham is 318 catechized men who are trained for warfare, and they go with him. They attack by night. They attack the rear of the army. They cause a retreat, and they salvage everybody there. So that's the first example of just warfare is coming in defense of a confederate, someone that you are by covenant united to for defense. And so that happens with Abraham. Now, the other thing that we see is Jeremiah 48, verse 10. Okay, This verse says, Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord deceitfully, and cursed is he who keeps back his sword from blood. The context there is talking about um, Moab that had betrayed Israel. Okay, this, is, this, is, this is prophesying, not Israel, but Judah. This is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, and there's going to be a betrayal where the Moabites are participating in the destruction of Judah, and that's going to come when Babylon comes and destroys the city. So that's the context of the verse. And the idea here is that there's a just war that should follow against Moab, and that there's a curse for failing to engage in that just war against them. And so that's the proof text that the Westminster Assembly selected. 
So there is a time when it is our duty to bring violence. And so war fighters who are fighting just wars, war fighters who are fighting just wars, sometimes struggle with guilt in terms of having to deal with combat and the memories of that combat. And if they are fighting a just war and have followed just rules of engagement, their consciences should be clean. It is their duty to engage in that warfare. And we ought to comfort them and remind them of the law of God. And oftentimes, you, you will have a higher despair rate and sort of suicide rate amongst veterans who, even if they have gone through a just war, sometimes are, are feeling the sense of the weight of what they have seen, what they have done, and to be able to talk to them and to be able to help to distinguish these things and to encourage them in the just things that have been done is something that's important to be able to speak to them about. And you may someday, especially you youngest men in your lives, there may be time where you're called into the service of your country or to be able to provide a just defense or to engage in just warfare and to be ready to have your conscience well engaged and instructed from the word of God to know about war. And so there are rules of war that are laid out in Deuteronomy 20. Um, and Deuteronomy 20 gives to us a sense of that. And so there's, there's things that are to be done there. And I'm not going to go through that whole text right now. But one of the things that I want to do is to point out some key pieces. The beginning is the priests are called out to speak to the men of Israel when they go to a war. So there's a place for those who are church officers to encourage men in times of war. And they're called and they're said, they're told, and the assumption is here again, this is a just war. And so they're to go out and they're to say, be strong and courageous. The Lord is with you. Fight. Don't shirk back from battle. And so this encouragement to fight and to do your duty is something that the church officers are called to do. And so the officers of the men, these are civil officers now, they're supposed to lead off, read off these, these exemptions for fighting. So the idea of a draft, if you have literally a, you must come even if you disagree with the war, even if you're afraid, that, that sort of law is, is wicked and tyrannical, especially now that there's discussion of the idea of, of the drafting of women into the armed services and the putting of them into combat. That is contrary to the law of God, it is tyrannical, and it is sinful. And so as a church, we have to be ready to speak out if that were ever enacted. But one of the things that's also to be done in terms of that with men is there are exemptions from this draft or from this call to assemble as a militia to resist uh, evil armies of invaders. And so that includes the idea of a person who's built a new house and, and hasn't dedicated it, somebody who's planted a vineyard and hasn't eaten of it. So you have a new home, but you haven't been able to initiate life in that home. You have a new business, and you haven't been able to enjoy the profits of that business. Um, you've betrothed, you're betrothed to a woman and haven't married her yet. And then elsewhere, we're told that in the first year of marriage, it's wrong to take a man for the duty in terms of the draft. And so this idea of, of those exemptions, the officers are also then to say, what man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the hearts of his brethren faint like his heart. So the idea is, if someone is struggling with cowardice or struggling with fear, they should not be there because they will not be a help, they will be a hindrance. And so even though there's a, a sermon beforehand where a church officer says, don't be afraid, that's sin, but it's not crime to be afraid. And so there's no civil penalty for someone who's too afraid to fight. They're allowed to leave, and in fact, they're encouraged to leave. So the idea is there's a social pressure and there's a conscience pressure to be courageous, but there's not a requirement to stay if you are afraid that's imposed with a sword. And so these are the kinds of, of things that we see there. And then there are rules that apply to besieging of cities. And if somebody wages war unjustly, the obligation is first to offer sort of a, an offer for peace and a statement that if you surrender now, we'll place you under tribute and we can end the war. But if you don't surrender, then we need to fight. And when you fight, you go through the process of plunder or indemnific indemnification. Okay, the payment for the harms of the war. And so in our day, what we do, what America has typically done, is gone in, fought wars, and then paid for everything in the countries we've taken over and not required any sort of indemnification. And the, the claim of this is that we are wiser than God because after World War I, requiring Germany to pay any money to the victors resulted in Hitler. So if you want indemnification for war harms, you want Hitler. How dare you? Right? This is the reasoning you hear over and over again is that when nations who are defeated in war are required to make payment for the harms they caused, that that results in something worse. And we think that we're wiser than God. 
Well, God requires the payment of harms. He calls it plunder. And so the idea that there's a payment for harms by the, by the evil party, by the losing evil party, is something that's established in the law of God. Then there's special rules that are applicable only in the promised land that were required uh, to be done in the conquering of the places that were supposed to be wiped out. So I have those there for you. And so those are special rules. And those special rules include, for example, not tearing down the trees that have food on them. Because why? Because they're about to enter that land and take it over. God's promised them success. They can't destroy, if they destroy the trees while they're besieging a town that produces food, it's going to take years for them to be able to produce food on those trees again. And they've been promised that land. So don't have an attitude of defeat. Know that God has promised you the land. Go into battle, take the cities, leave the trees. That was why that was a special rule for those cities. So I've highlighted for you verse 15 and verse 16. Those have a clear break of which part applies to cities in general and which one applies in the special case of the promised land. So I know that's a a lot there, but those are special rules for warfare. Um, Now, necessary defense. So it's clear in the Bible that there is such a thing as just war and there are rules to govern warfare. There are rules of engagement. God himself has given rules of engagement. And so we get into necessary defense and there are rules of, of of, of engagement for us in ordinary life. So let's read Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. Let's pause there. Somebody breaks in, you resist them to defend your family, to defend your house. There's no guilt. It's not wrong. It's not sin. Now, here's a condition. These are case laws, right? So in one situation, we have a condition of a man's breaking in, he's struck, and he's killed. Now, here's the other condition. If the sun has risen on him, there should be guilt for his bloodshed. He shall make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Okay, there's, there's several conditions, and they're not a chain of conditions. These are all kind of separate situations. So the if the sun has risen on him, there should be guilt for his bloodshed. Some of the people were saying, you know, if somebody breaks in during the night, you can fight them, and you can resist them, and you can, you can kill them in defense of yourself and others. But if it's daytime, you can't do that. That's not what this is saying. That's a misinterpretation of this text. Right? If somebody's breaking in and trying to do you harm during the daytime, uh, you can defend yourself there. The idea is this. If it's the next day, and you find him, and you engage him, and you kill him, You've murdered him because you've taken vengeance. You're not defending yourself. So the principle here is the difference between defending yourself or vengeance taking. You have the right and authority from God to defend yourself. You do not have the right and authority from God to avenge yourself. The vengeance is God's. And he gives it to the civil magistrate for the order of society. And if you take vengeance into your own hands, you are murdering. So that distinction is an important distinction that's clearly made in the law of God. Now, look what it says. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. Who's the he there? The he is the thief. Instead of going and killing him, which is you taking vengeance, and also it's over-penalizing, we should not kill people for stealing. What should be done for stealing is requiring restitution. Restitution is what's established by law. And so he should make full restitution. And even if he has nothing, then he should be sold for his theft. This idea of requirement to work to pay off the debt. That's the idea. And so the Bible limits the maximum of that to seven years, right? You steal a million dollars and you can't pay it off in seven years. The maximum time that you can have that work is seven years, okay? But the idea is that there's an amount of time people can be required to serve. And so that is uh, necessary defense versus vengeance taking. All right, page five. The neglecting or withdrawing of the lawful and necessary means of the preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, these are all things that that are forbidden in the commandment to not murder. So for the preservation of life, Matthew 25 and James 2 are both about giving food to those that are in need. Matthew 25 teaches us that when we give to each other, we are giving to Christ. And so if one of us is in need and we are unwilling to help each other, 
we are unwilling to give it to Christ. So if Christ were starving, if Christ were naked, if Christ were in prison, if one of us is unjustly put into prison, if one of us is hungry or naked without place to dwell, then we should be willing to do for each other what we would be willing to do for Christ if he were in that situation. And so that idea of the willingness to not neglect the duty of helping to preserve each other's lives. Now, this even applies to your own property, and this applies to the management of it. Look at Ecclesiastes 6, verses 1 and 2. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. Right? Mismanagement or the failure to care for your life and to, to preserve your life across time so that you can then uh, enjoy the blessings and the estate that God has given to you, those are examples of that sort of neglect. So neglecting lawful and necessary means of preserving life or withdrawing lawful and necessary means of the preservation of life. And in our time, one of the ways this comes up is discussing things like um, end-of-life care in terms of uh, things where if a person um, if a person is receiving food and water and uh, that they're close to dying, sometimes people with, withdraw food and water to continue their life. And that is not permissible. That's the withdrawing of ordinary means. That is, that is, that is, that is sin. And it's leaving a person to die. Now, there are other things where the person, there are extraordinary means that are not the ordinary things that are being done for a life where there might be a causing the person to breathe or, or something like that where you can take risks trying to withdraw those things to see the person live. But the difference between withdrawing ordinary means of preservation, giving food and water, versus trying to remove some sort of extraordinary thing and see if the person can live without it those are different types of things. And so we have to be careful to draw those lines and study them. And there's a, a duty for us to apply careful study to preserving the life of others. And oftentimes people get older and we think of them as less useful. And we just go, well, it's a convenient thing for this person to stop receiving care. Uh, or this person's disabled. It's a convenient thing to stop giving them care. And you see that especially in nations once socialized medicine is put into place you see the state making decisions about who is worthy of life. And it is the duty of the individual to provide medical care for those who are under their authority. It's the duty of the church in our diaconal care to help each other, to be able to have the ordinary means for the preservation of life. And so we need to be concerned about the encroachment of government on those things and be unwilling to see our own nation have that sort of socialized medicine put into place, which inevitably leads to decisions uh, about who to kill. Now, um, sinful anger. Sinful anger is forbidden. Sinful anger is not all anger. Uh, so we have two key verses here. We have Matthew 5, 22, and we have Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. So Matthew 5 reads as follows, at the bottom of page 5. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Angry without a cause. Angry without a cause. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So this idea of angry speech has eternal consequences. Um, Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So when is anger right? Because right? we're going to be angry and not sin. So when is anger right? Anger is not sinful by definition. Anger is the appropriate response to evil or injustice. Anger is a gift from God for giving strength to resist evil. Think about this. Somebody breaks into your house and you need to stop them and you're not angry. Now compare it to scenario two. Somebody breaks into your house and you need to stop them and you are angry. In which scenario are you more likely to aggressively engage in order to defend yourself and your family? Right? The anger is a blessing from God for resisting evil. Now, Jesus had anger. Jesus had righteous anger. But when we have anger and we apply it wrongly, it's sin. So, righteous anger is a reaction to injustice that gives strength to resist evil committed by those who oppress ourselves or others. So, when is anger sinful? 
So there's four conditions that, if they're not met, uh, sinful anger is sinful. If there's not a cause, right? Jesus says that explicitly in the text. So has somebody actually committed an injustice or an evil? Or there's basis for anger. Have you given due process? Is, is the thing, is it possible you're misinterpreting? Have you asked them what's going on? There's different due process necessary in different situations. For example, the due process for somebody breaking in, if they're armed and they broke down your door, all the due process you need is, this guy broke down my door and he has a weapon. Right? That's, that's it. That's the due process. You look to see who the target is. Now, if the person is somebody that you're not in immediate danger from, you need to ask them, hey, it looked like you were sinning when you did this thing. Can you explain what was going on there? Because it sure looked like this to me. And so that idea of going and asking, uh, being able to make it plain. Going and asking does not mean pretending like you don't have a specific charge. Right? Going and asking means you can ask questions, but if there's a really heavy concern, you need to go and say, it looked like this. Is that the case? Now, the third condition. Are you angry at the right thing? Right? Your dog does something, you're mad at your dog, your dog is not a rational agent. Being mad at your dog is irrational. Calls into question if you are a rational agent. So, being mad at irrational things, being mad at objects, being mad at animals, is foolish. And when we're mad at, ir- at irrational things, like I said before, that means we're actually mad at God. Being mad at God, always the wrong object. So, the other thing is being disproportionate in duration. Are you, are you, are you letting the sun go down in your anger? Are you being angry through taking the Lord's Supper? Are you, are you resolving the conflict or are you letting it sit around? And I said there were four conditions. I lied. Sorry, there's five. There are four. There's just one more. Uh, the fifth one is being disproportionate in intensity. Right? So somebody does something, it's actually wrong, it's actually an injustice, and you respond with rage. Right? But it's a minor thing. Right? When, it, when one of your kids does, disobeys you in some minor way and you're, you start to scream at them. Right? That, that's inappropriate. It's wrong. That's not the way, that's not the intensity that ought to be given. Basically, the only time you should be screaming at your kids is if they are trying to harm somebody else or they're on the way to harm, right? And so you scream to get them to stop or to be heard in some sort of situation where you're trying to harm that. There's not an appropriate place for screaming at your kids. And so, other than stopping harm or stopping them from harming themselves. Now, um, those things, those five things you examine is the anger sinful. If any of those conditions is met, it's sinful. If all those conditions are met, it's sinful. Any combination of them, it's sinful. So, hatred. 1 John 3.15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Right, so, is, if you hate your brother, are you literally a murderer? Have you literally killed somebody without justification? No. But the point is, what's being taught here, it's the same thing Jesus taught, right? The idea that you've heard you shall not murder, but I tell you, right? So, the idea here is, this is the category it fits into, the Sixth Commandment. So the organizing of these verses underneath the Sixth Commandment is what the Bible itself does. The Bible itself organizes all of the other commandments underneath the two major commandments, love God, love neighbor, and then inside of that, the subcategories, right? And so inside of the subcategory of love neighbor, there are a lot of commandments that fit underneath the category, do not murder. So if you hate your brother, you're committing a sin that's under the Sixth Commandment. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Page 6, Leviticus 19.17 You shall not hate your brother in your heart. That's pretty plain. And then it tells us an example of how murder works. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. So, if you see your brother sinning and you don't rebuke him, you're leaving him to his own sin. And that's a type of hatred. Now, if you try to take that and apply it to every single sin that's possible that your brother does, you're going to be constantly in conflict. So you have to evaluate which things need to be rebuked. And as you get to know people, you start to know what are the besetting sins of their lives? What are the major things going on? what's happening there, and the level of closeness you have to them. And so, one of the ways we're called to not hate our brothers is by not leaving them to fall into pits. 
not leaving them to stumble, which means we seek to rebuke them in a loving way. Hatred is the desire for the harm of the object. Love is the desire for the good of the object. It's important that we rebuke in such a way that we're seeking the good of somebody. You can rebuke somebody in such a way as to seek their harm, right? If you know a person pretty well, you can rebuke them about stuff that you know will mess them up. You can try to hurt them with rebukes. And so you can also use words to try to heal and help. Envy. So I have a a definition there for you from Webster's 1828. What's envy? Basically, it's pain of your soul that's caused by being unhappy about somebody else being better than you or being more successful than you. It's pain that you've got from somebody else being better than you or being more successful than you. Now, a sound heart, Proverbs 14.30, a sound heart is life to the body. So a well-ordered heart. But envy is rottenness to the bones. So you know your heart is in disorder when you have envy. Because what's happening is you're valuing something more than you ought to, and you're valuing God less than you ought to. And so we become discontent with our own station. The desire for revenge is forbidden by the Sixth Commandment. And so we've talked about that. Um, There's more there you can read on your own time. Excess of passions. What are the passions? The passions are emotions. Excessive passions tend toward our own destruction. So they result in excess in terms of action, stress, poor government of self, lack of stability, dearth of self-control. And so disordered and changing desires resulting in disordered and unstable goals will make your life a wreck. So you have to keep your feelings in check. There is a problem when emotions are allowed to run muck. The mind must rule the emotions. Emotions are a result of your thoughts. And when you have strong emotions, that's a pointer for you of something you value a lot. So if you're really upset about something, then what you probably had happen is something you were expecting or something that you had that you valued a lot. And when you lose it, the emotion that comes from that is revealing that value. And if you're despairing, you're valuing that thing more than God. And that's a callback to think about that, to say, what lie am I believing that makes it so I think that this thing is more valuable than God? The same thing with strong anger or whatever. So the emotions are a signal for us about our valuing of things. And and they help us to go back and to consider uh, what are we discontent with? What are we envious about? What lie are we believing about the highest good, about God versus these things? All right, so um, bitterness. Uh, Bitterness, we're we're commanded in Ephesians 4.31, this is page 7. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Okay, these are all things that tend toward murder. Bitterness, you know, it can be inward in terms of sort of a an unchanging anger or an unchanging despair. Your bitterness is kind of designated by implacability. Unch- it can't be stopped. It can't be placated. It can't be you know reduced. If you're nursing a grudge, if you're nursing despair, if you're nursing something that causes this sort of strong, unhappy negativity, that's bitterness. And so, you remember Naomi in the book of Ruth? And how her husband and her sons had died, and she comes back with Ruth, and she says, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant anymore, call me Mara, call me bitter. And she's trying to identify herself with her unhappiness. And so sometimes you see people lay hold on something bad that's happened to them, and this sort of like victim status, but our society is very good right now at encouraging people to think about victim status. It's like, did you know that 400 years ago, someone did something bad to you, and you have a horrible life because of it? You know, my Scottish ancestors were oppressed by the British, so should this give me a basis to consistently be bitter in life about how much wealthier I'd have been if my Scottish Presbyterian ancestors hadn't been oppressed by the British and had us result in America. Like, that's something I should be mad about. So any of you who have any English blood, tisk tisk. Right? This, this problem 
of bitterness. Our society encourages bitterness and encourages envy as a virtue. And the idea of supporting that bitterness or envy as somehow a support of true justice. That is sin. If we encourage people to have a victim mentality, if we encourage people to have bitterness of soul, we are sinning and we are supporting their sin. We are lying to them. We are setting a trap for them. It's a form of flattery in support of bitterness. And so, don't love, don't hate your neighbor. Rebuke him for his sins. If you run into somebody who is engaging in a victim mentality, it is your duty, if you have the appropriate relationship and if the timing is appropriate, to engage with that as sin. All right. Now, wrath and anger. Wrath is hatred. We've talked about that. We have no right to hate, except in those cases where God has revealed reprobation. So you have a right to hate the devil. And I have there, again, more discussion about anger that you can look at on your own later. And clamor. What's clamor? Okay. Clamor as a type of sin that's talked about in Ephesians there. Unnecessary complaining and unnecessary urgency of demands. Have you ever had somebody try to really push you for something? You go, I have all of these duties. I've got like 25 things I've got to do today. And they say, no, but I need you to do mine right now. And you go, why? What about it is urgent? What about the thing makes it so it has to happen right now? So that putting of stress and demanding of someone's time when it's not necessary is clamoring. It's creating stress and damage and, and it's removing the ability to focus on more important things. Or when you complain unjustly, you're creating that same scenario. That is a type of sin. Evil speaking in general also, we saw that listed in, in Ephesians, but also specifically speaking of others in an evil way, pulling them down without necessity. Right? There's times when you have to speak against somebody because they did something that has to be dealt with, disciplined, punished. But speaking evil of other people without cause is sin. All right, so we go to distracting cares. That's part six on page eight. Distracting cares. Matthew 6 has an excellent verse. If you, if you have not read Matthew 6 recently, I encourage you to go there. It will bless your soul. Just read it and meditate on that chapter. It is a glorious chapter. Matthew 6, 31. Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Okay? Now, you take that attitude towards your own problems. When your brother comes to you and asks for help, you don't take that attitude towards them. Right? What you do is you say, be blessed and be filled, and you give them what is helpful. But for yourself, you rely upon God to supply. Now, you can counsel them in the, with this way, but if you have the means to help them, don't do it, and counsel them this way, you're, you're doing what James says not to do. All right, so the immoderate use of drink and meal and labor and recreations, right? I, I get stressed, I want to eat. That's not the moderate use of food. Right? Some people want to go to the bottle. That's not the moderate use of drink. Um, there's a need to work, and we need to work hard, and our, our world is, is typically, most of the people are, are underworking, but some people work in a way that's unhelpful. You can drive yourself into the ground by working immoderately. And so the question, if the Lord gives sleep to his beloved, and so, are you able to do your other necessary duties? Can you do family worship? Can you do private worship? Are you able to keep a Sabbath? Are you able to sleep? Are you able to enjoy any of the blessings God has given to you? If the answer is a no, for a prolonged period of time, you are working too much. And frankly, you have to do family worship every day, and you have to keep the Sabbath every week. So, that is an immediate thing. No, you stop. You don't overwork. That is overworking. And so, God gives limits on what is appropriate work and recreations. Have you ever run yourself into the ground trying to do something you're having fun doing? Playing a game too late, doing whatever, like chasing down a recreation. You're tired, you don't feel like working, but you're sure okay with spending tons of energy on this recreation thing you're about to do. Right? You ever come back from a vacation and been like, this was harder than work? Right? That process, if we, if we are tearing down ourselves and our ability to perform our duties for the enjoyment of our recreations, that is an immoderate use of recreation. So, and if it's keeping us from our other duties, so look at uh, Isaiah 5.12 there. It's point E under 7, 7E. Um, Isaiah 5.12, The harp and the strings, the tambourine and flute, and wine are in their feasts. 
but they do not regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of his hands. Right? If you're able to chase down your recreations, but you don't have time to consider the work of God, you are misplacing your priorities. A lot of the time people will say for the Sabbath, for the Sabbath day is a day for rest, and that means I can do recreation on it. You, that's exactly what Isaiah 5.12 is talking about, displacing recreation and the enjoyment of things over the use of the Lord's day. So that is forbidden. Now, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. Uh, there's a lot that can be said on those things. Uh, I want to point out, in particular, provoking words and quarreling, since typically most of us are, are not in positions of tyrannical civil authority or uh, engaging in assault. Uh, so what I'd like to do is, is to encourage us to think on with our remaining time provoking words and quarreling. So go to uh, chapter 9, or sorry, page 9. Um, I'm sorry, page 8. There's the provoking words. I'm sorry, the bottom of page 8. Provoking words. Words can harm the health of another. Conflict can harm the health of another. Stress is a real destroyer of health. Additionally, conflict and harsh words encourage violence. Right? You can one of the best ways to provoke somebody into a fight is with the right choice of words. And that's sinful. If you're really good at provoking other people to violence, that's a skill you need to break. We must select our conflicts and sharpness of our speech carefully, and we should not be overly contentious or sharp. Uh, Proverbs twelve eighteen. There's one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. Is your tongue like a piercing of a sword, or does it promote health? So examine your speech in that. Proverbs 15, 1, we're at the top of page 9. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Right? This is the provoking power. If you get into, if you use sharp words, then you are stirring up fights. If you speak hard truths with soft words that are still clear, it's a powerful, powerful way to rebuke, and it turns away wrath. Now, quarreling, the middle of page 9. Right, that's uh, disputing with angry words. It's uh, raising frivolous objections, fault-finding, disagreement without proper reason to do so. That can tend towards, like Galatians 5.15 says, biting and devouring each other consuming one another. And drunk people act in this way. The drunk man, Proverbs 23, verse 29 says, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaints, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, right? If, you, if you're raising arguments, if you're complaining quickly, and if you are causing yourself to quickly pick fights, or you're behaving like a drunk person, whose intelligence is dimmed by wine. So these are the kinds of rebukes the scripture has here for us about being careful to not provoke fights with our words. And so, the very end, uh, whatever attends to the destruction of the life of any, the verses I've got down there from Exodus 21, that's a big chunk of verses that are all about our duties to stop harm. So some of them include things like, if you have an animal that has shown itself to tend towards harming people, you need to restrain that animal. You, you have a special care obligation. If you dig a pit, you can't just leave it open for people to potentially fall into. Right? There, are, there are rules about the protection of life and not being negligent in the care of other people's lives. And so if you have property, if you have a business, if you give work for other people to do, it's your responsibility to care about the safety of those people. There's a reasonable level of care that needs to be taken. And so that obligation of avoiding things that tend towards the destruction of the life of any. We all have to take risks in life, right? The most dangerous thing you do on a daily basis is probably drive your car. But you take that risk, and you choose to do a thing that could result in your death. You get on the highway, going 70 miles an hour or whatever, right? And that thing could result in your death. You take risks. So we're not saying, the scriptures don't teach, and the Westminster Standards don't teach, that you can't do anything that could potentially result in risk of your life. The idea is you must make those decisions wisely and think about the risks rather than failing to foresee the dangers that can come. So we've gone through the uh, Sixth Commandment now in terms of the negative duties there, and I hope that uh, that 
is a blessing to you to see about the way in which the law of God is sufficient. Remember, what the law of God does is, first and foremost, it's a mirror. It shows us our guilt and our need of salvation. And if you've examined the sixth commandment here and have not been bitten by any of it, then you have not been listening. All of us are breakers of the sixth commandment. And we need salvation by the blood of Christ to pay for our sinning, breaking this law. And so we are also to remember that one of the purposes of the law is it instructs to bind evil action, to prevent it. So even unbelievers, when they hear the law of God talked about, when the law in our civil society is put into place, the things that are affirmed by our society, those things restrain evil. And so that's one of the purposes of the law. And then also for we who are saved, it is a lamp unto our feet. And so this sixth commandment ought to help us to understand the way that we should go to live in wisdom. So I stand open if there's any comments, questions, or objections from the voting members or those with speaking rights. Well, okay. Mr. Price. Yeah, the difference between just warfare and vengeance. So just warfare uh, involves the, an authority first declaring the object of the war. Right? So our Constitution, for example, provides a mechanism for that. It allows for the declaration of war against states. But if somebody's a non-state actor and there is a need for the use of the coercive power of the government against them outside of the jurisdiction of the country, then you also have what are called letters of marquee and writs of reprisal. So a letter of marquee is if somebody's on the high seas, the idea of declaring that person uh, essentially at war with a non-state, and you're saying we have the power to deal with them on the seas, and writ of reprisal is the idea of you can go to this place of land. So pirates sometimes will literally set up bases you know, in some lawless land, and the idea that you can say we can go after them. Similar to the, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda hiding out in some country. We could say we're going after the people in Al-Qaeda. And so there's a, you know, what we should have done is written a, uh, a letter of, a writ of reprisal. Uh, that would have been the appropriate legal function, for example, for our federal government to do against uh, Al-Qaeda, is to have a, a writ of reprisal. So that, that formal declaration is an act of law that makes it so that there's, here's it's a public matter. And it's by a person in public authority as opposed to just a private actor. Um, so there are times when you can organize people for just defense, and it's not war, right? So if we, if we knew that there were people coming to persecute us in the church here, you know, what the, the, the French Calvinists did when they were being persecuted, um, the men came to their religious worship armed, and they had people stand on the edges to guard while they were worshiping. And if they had been attacked, they would have in an organized manner resisted that attack. And that would look a lot like war, but it's necessary defense. It's not a plan to go strike back and chase those people down. It's a defensive action. Um, and so the difference is a declaration of war allows for offensive action against a person until they surrender. Any, any other clarification needed on that, or does that make sense? Uh, yeah, Thank you. Okay. Mr. Cody. Uh, real quick, um, to supplement a lawful standing army, if you um, institute a draft, um, that is not uh, illegal or unbiblical, is it? If you're requiring men to, you're saying, okay, um, it's time to justly defend yourselves and your nation, the neighbors around you um, are calling you up to, to serve. Uh, that's not uh, a sin, is it? So if by a draft you mean a threat of coercive power saying you must assemble or you will be you know, criminally sanctioned um, and you don't grant the exemption of I'm too afraid to come, yes, it's tyrannical. Like, the biblical exemptions are exemptions that no state is allowed to go beyond. If you, if you require somebody, if you give exemptions um, for other made-up things, you're, you're limiting somebody from their duty. And so the Bible provides the categories for us to know what are the just categories for exemption and what are not, and also um, the idea of requiring a person, even when they are afraid, uh, when they're unwilling, you know, when they don't want to be there, and they would say, I'd like to leave because of my fear, um, that, that requirement that they have to confess a cause is a shame requirement. And so to instead threaten a person with other coercive power is beyond the power that the law of God gives. Good. All right. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for helping us to consider the sixth commandment and the applications of it. 
I ask that you would deepen our knowledge of your law, that you would cause us to grow in our love for each other and of you. We thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ, that this law is above us, that this law is beyond what we are capable of, and so we thank you for the great mercy that we have in Jesus. We ask, Father, that you would help us to move beyond guilt to remembering the grace that you've given and to remember that now, out of gratitude, we ought to seek to apply your law in more detail further and farther than we have before. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.